0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We now take our Bibles and read together three passages from God's Holy Word. The first is John chapters two and three. We begin our reading at chapter two, verse 23. And read through to chapter 3, verse 21. Now while he, that is, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. But just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, But to save the world through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he is not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Whatever lives by the truth, it comes into the light, it is so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. We turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, the verses 22 to 32. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, This is what the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations... I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land, in the land I gave your forefathers. You'll be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field. so You will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds. And you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. The third passage we need to read comes from Numbers 21, the verses 4 through 9. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go into Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you, and pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Brothers and sisters, I proclaimed to you this morning the word of our God as we could read it from John, Ezekiel, and Numbers. And I ask your attention in particular for that which the Holy Spirit records for our edification... In John chapter 3, verse 3, in reply to Nicodemus, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus' statement in our text strikes us as very categorical you want to see the kingdom of God, you would inherit eternal life. It says, Jesus, you must be born again. And if you're not born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's very categorical, straightforward. And that, of course, raises the pressing question, are you born again? It's not the standard question asked in our midst. And yet, congregation, maybe it should be. I remind you of the form for the baptism of infants. A form read in relation to each of us when we were baptized. A form read so often thereafter in relation to those around us and so concerning ourselves too again. We and our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are by nature children of wrath so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. We do need to realize, of course, that the fact that we're baptized does not in itself guarantee that we're born again. And so Jesus' statement in our text comes back at us, hard and fast. Are you born again? So how would you answer that? Are you? And how do you know whether you're born again? I summarized the sermon this morning with this theme, Jesus calls all men to a birth from heaven. I ask your attention for two points. Why a new birth is needed, and in second place, what a new birth looks like. The words of our text, brothers and sisters, are spoken to Nicodemus. Nicodemus appeared on the scene as an elaboration of the last part of chapter two. Chapter two had recorded that Jesus had gone to Jerusalem, to the temple, on the occasion of the Passover. At the Passover, he drove out the merchants who were in the temple, and so did other signs, and the results of the signs Jesus did, verse 23 was, that many believed in his name. They saw his signs and believed. And it would appear congregation of Nicodemus is one of those who believed. He came to Jesus at night and he said, this is chapter 3, verse 2, Rabbi, he says, we know your teachers come from God. No one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. We hear Nicodemus' testimony, and we say, that's good, sounds positive. Jesus will surely be grateful and impressed. But it turns out, congregation, that Jesus is not impressed with Nicodemus's testimony. I read in chapter 2, verse 24, That Jesus would not entrust himself to those who now believed in him. And he wouldn't entrust himself to them because, says verse 24, he knew all men. He knew what was going on deep inside. He didn't entrust himself to them. And that's to say, did not commit himself to them, did not feel safe with them. Though they said, yes, you are from God, Jesus was not about to give himself to them and embrace them as his people yet. And how were to understand their faith then... Is perhaps best illustrated by the parable recorded in Mark, thir- Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. For there we read about seed being distributed in different types of soil. In that which falls upon rocky places is comparable to the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, says I believe. But Jesus continues, since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he falls away. Or when the cares of the world, he falls away. Is that faith? Well, that, brothers and sisters, is why Jesus responds the way he does to Nicodemus' confession in verse 2. We know you are from God, says Nicodemus. But Jesus does not get all warm and enthusiastic in the face of this confession. In reply, verse 3 says, our text says, In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And what is Jesus now doing, beloved? He's going to show Nicodemus what faith really looks like. Well, he's going to show what it looks like to be born again. The text begins with an oath. It comes back in our translation as, I tell you the truth. All the translations of verily, verily I say to you, or something to that effect. But it's an oath. Jesus is insistent. This is how it is. This is beyond discussion. There's urgency here. Nicodemus, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Born again, says our translation. And you'll see beside the word born again in your Bible in front of you, a little footnote, essentially the bottom of the page, or born from above. And the Greek indeed allows for both understandings, born again as well as born from above. English, of course, has to choose one of the two. Nicodemus responds to Jesus' word, with that understanding of born again. Hence this question of verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Says Nicodemus. Surely you can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And we understand. Nicodemus's problem here. How's that meant to be born again? Second time into mother's womb? It doesn't work. Jesus answers Nicodemus' concern, verse 5, with reference to that other understanding of born again, now born from above. So, says Jesus, verse 5, I tell you the truth, and there's your oath again, verily, verily, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless, says Jesus, he's born of water and the spirits. Both, he says, are necessary. Water... And the spirits. Now, how this rebirth from above through water and the spirits, how that works, is difficult to comprehend. And Jesus says as much in verses six, seven, and eight. Look at verse seven. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes and where it's going. And so it is, everyone born in the Spirit. How can one be born in the Spirit? How does it happen? Hard to lay your finger on it. Still, it's so scriptural. We read together a portion from Ezekiel 36. It's a passage that the prophet has to speak to the people in their exile in Babylon. They went into exile, We understand. Because they harden themselves in their sin. But, says the prophet in this passage, the Lord is going to work sovereignly, is going to work mightily, so that he will, says the prophet, verse 25, sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Water. There's a reference to the various ceremonies of the Old Testament. Ceremonies that depicted the notion of the washing away of sin. And that is what God intends to do. He will sprinkle clean water on his people so they will be clean. But more, he continues 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and obey my laws. A heart transplants, a total radical change worked by the spirit so that these people now in exile because of sin will begin to obey the word of God. Their obedience, of course is going to generate a certain kind of actions. A lifestyle that differs from the way they used to live. In fact, they're going to hate the way they used to live. Verse 31, You will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. That's God's mighty work, congregation. That is this born from above. Forgiveness of sin and such change of heart that there is a whole new lifestyle. It's clear to us then that this born again that Jesus is talking about or this born from above is a radical, is a profound and is a delightful thing. We listen to this. And we recognize that that such born from above, being born again, is a mighty work of God. And so, congregation, it is. We do well to emphasize, this is a mighty work of God. There is no man or woman, depraved as we are, able to make ourselves born again. And yet, we may not neglect here our personal responsibility. Why does Jesus respond to Nicodemus with these words? He says, I tell you the truth, Nicodemus. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Why does Nicodemus have to know this? Is this so that he can now sit back like a bump in a log and just wait for rebirth to happen? And we understand that's not the case. He's confronted with the need for reborn so that he might see to it that he does what he can to be born again. And here I remind you again of the two aspects Jesus speaks of in verse 5. You can't enter the kingdom of God as one is born of water and the Spirit. Water, I said, harks back to the washings of the Old Testament. Washings that depicted the washing away of sin, yes, but before sin could be washed away, what had to happen? And you know, congregation, what had to happen? The people had to repent of sin. So John the Baptist came baptizing, washing. But before he baptized anyone, those who came to be baptized had to repent of their sins. And this is something Nicodemus surely was familiar with. Well now, here's Jesus. And he says, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again, born from above, of water and the spirits. The water congregation emphasizes the human responsibility. You must repent of sin to be born again. The spirit emphasizes the divine work. It is God who makes the change happen. And exactly because there's a human component here, human responsibility, it will never do for any of us, nor for Nicodemus for that matter, to sit there and wait like a bump on a log for reborn to happen. There's a responsibility. And so when Jesus says to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus is putting the onus on Nicodemus. You, Nicodemus, must ensure that you are born again. Now, here, surely, is a most difficult demand and what makes it so difficult? You're responsible to be born again. What makes this difficult for Nicodemus? Why, congregation, think it through. This man was a member of the of the Jewish ruling council, says chapter 3, verse 1. Point? He was an office bearer in Israel. We'd say he was an elder in the congregation. And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. On top of that, verse 10 says, you're Israel's teacher. There you have it again. He's a man, full bottle on the contents of the Bible, charged to tell the people the Bible says. He, a teacher, needs to be born again? Isn't that over the top? On top of that, Nicodemus was a son of Abraham, Israel. Point is, he was a covenant child. He received the sign and seal of God's covenants, in his case circumcision. As a pious Israelite, he undoubtedly went Sabbath by Sabbath to the synagogue praise the name of the Lord, to listen to God's word, to pray to God, to give His tithes, and so on. Is He to be born again? Does He need to be washed with water for the cleansing of sin? Does He need to be renewed by the Spirit, changed to be a new man? Isn't this born-again thing something for tax collectors and sinners? Surely not for the office-bearers of Israel. But Jesus, beloved, is emphatic. He says to Nicodemus, to this covenant child, to this office-bearer, no one, no one, can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Jesus emphasizes the point in verse 7, you should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And we need to note that here, you must be born again in verse 7, the word you is plural. And that's to say, not only Nicodemus must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, but you and I must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Striking. We're baptized, are we not? Covenant children, are we not? Go to church faithfully, do we not? Read our Bibles, engage in Bible study, don't we? Send our children to catechism and to Christian school and do all the right thing in the home. And we are told if they're born again. How does that all square? But there it is, beloved, Jesus is emphatic. You must be born again. And so I have to come back to the question I asked earlier. Are you, in fact, born again? Are you born from above, washed with water, changed by the spirits? Are you? How would you answer that question to your children? Move on to our second point. What does a new birth look like? Jesus' demand congregation to Nicodemus that he must be born again was a puzzle to Nicodemus. Verse nine. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Jesus' reply, verse 10, you're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? Implication? If you know your Old Testament, Nicodemus, it must be obvious to you from what God has revealed in the Old Testament that you need to be born again. And I can refer to passages, Ezekiel 36, as one example of where the Old Testament makes it plain that there is need for this new heart, this washing, this born from above. But Jesus' congregation does more than tell Nicodemus that he ought to look in his Old Testament to find evidence that indeed he needs to be born again. Jesus goes on to explain the Old Testament. And to do so with authority from heaven. That's verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. And so he, the son of man, is in a position to open up the Old Testament and make plain what the Lord teaches there. And what does the Lord teach? In relation to being born again, Jesus picks up on the material of Numbers 21. That's verse 14 of chapter 3. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. His point? Jesus needs to be lifted up that people may be saved. More. Somehow you need to be linked to Jesus, the crucified Jesus, to be saved. Now what beloved is Jesus' point here? His reference is to Numbers 21. It's a passage of scripture we're familiar with. The people of Israel have lived for a number of months at Mount Sinai. The Lord has established his covenant with his people, a bond of love, and said, Of Israel, you are mine. And God supplies the people's needs day in, day out. Food and drink. Specifically, the manna. There came the day the people left Mount Sinai and traveled through the desert. And as they were traveling, one day they grumbled, they grew impatient, and they spoke against God and Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and this detestable, miserable food, this manna, we don't want it anymore. Their grumbling brought about a reply from God. What did God do? Verse 6 The Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Why snakes? Why could God not give a different plague? Indeed, a good question. But the snakes' congregation recall what happened in the fall into sin, Genesis 3. The serpents, Satan. Comes to bite the people of God. And not just once as in, in paradise, but habitually in the course of the years of one's life. Now there's, in Numbers 21, The cry of the people, they're terrified at the snakes. And so, verse 7, they come to Moses and say, We've sinned against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord, take the snakes away from us. And Moses does pray. And let us be fixing our minds, congregation. God is indeed mighty to take the snakes away. To take away Satan from this life, from attacking the people of God. But God, in Numbers 21, does not take the snakes away. Instead, he gives the command, make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And then, says the Lord, when anyone was bitten by the snake, he could look at the bronze snake on the pole and he could live. Now, how congregation do you Picture this happening. You see these snakes crawling around through the camp of Israel. And people dodging these snakes. And over yonder is a snake on a pole, a bronze snake. And the word goes out the camp when you're bitten, look at that snake. How do you see this happening now? Do you imagine in the eye of your mind that the people keep on jumping up and down, dodging these snakes having a quick glance at the pole, and dodging some more, and those who are bitten, running off home to get some anti-venom? Would that catch it, what the Lord has in mind here? We understand that's not the case. As a matter of fact, the way the Hebrew is put together, the instruction of the Lord was, when someone is bitten, he's to look at the snake on the pole. Look, not in the sense of a quick glance and then keep on dancing around to to, to, to get away from the snakes, but to stand there and fix your gaze on that snake on the pole. And the snakes on the ground around you? Leave them be. Because your redemption would not lie in your avoiding the snakes on the ground around you or getting some anti-venom. But your redemption lies in being fixed and focused on the snake and the pole. Now Jesus says, so too the Son of Man is to be lifted up. We understand what that lifting up is a reference to. He's to be crucified. That's his pole. That's also the message of the Old Testament. The Lamb of God will take upon Himself the sin of the people. He will suffer for sin to redeem His people. In so doing, He cleanses people of their sins. Now, how do you benefit from Jesus Christ? A quick glance at Him on the pole on the cross... And they keep on dancing around the snakes of life to avoid being bitten. And we understand that that is not the point. In the midst of the snake pit of life, as in Satan keeps on attacking and biting, what is it for the child of God to do? To fix his gaze on Christ crucified. Crucified. That is your life. That is your everything. Now, what's the connection between Jesus' instruction about the snake on the pole and himself being crucified then? What's the connection between that on the one hand and being born again on the other? Why, simply this congregation, there is a parallel. To enter the kingdom of God, you are to be born again. To receive eternal life, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. But kingdom of God and eternal life are one and the same thing. So born again and believing in Jesus Christ are one and the same thing. What does born again look like? How do you know whether you are born again? Well, born again, what does that look like It looks like believing, trusting in Jesus Christ. But then not the believing of John 2, verse 23. People saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. So Nicodemus can say, yes, I know you're from God. You come from heaven. No, that's not the sort of believing Jesus is thinking of. But the sort of believing he's thinking of is that fixation, that looking to the cross. Glued to the cross as the only source of life, while the snakes are crawling around you. And Jesus says, that being fixed on the cross, on Christ crucified... That's the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit's described in Ezekiel 36. That new heart gives you a whole new outlook so you don't worry about the snakes on the ground around you, but you're fixed on Christ alone. That reliance on Jesus Christ as the only source of life in the midst of all of Satan's attacks. That, says Jesus, is how you enter the kingdom of God. Is how you can be righteous. That's what it means to be born again. And so it becomes clear to us, congregation, that being born again looks like something. Like believing. Believing, not in the sense of, oh yes, I can sing the Apostles' Creed, I believe Jesus comes from God. But believing as in dependence, in the midst of the snake pit of life focused on Christ and Christ alone. And make no mistake, Satan continues to attack. Is that not the message of Revelation 12? Satan is cast out of heaven. That serpent is angry and seeks to devour the people of God. The only way to escape is fixed on Christ. That's Jesus' word in John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one only Son, that whoever believes in him, fixed on him, focused on Christ crucified, shall not perish despite Satan's attacks and Satan's anger and Satan's bites, shall not perish, but have eternal life. God, after all, didn't send a son into the world to condemn the world, but, says verse 17, to save the world. So, are you born again? Don't answer that question with a story About some experience you may or may not have had. But rather, in the grunt of life, do you admit the reality of Satan's ongoing attacks? In the midst of those ongoing attacks, do you admit the reality of your vulnerability, of your weaknesses, of you being bitten again and again, that you don't want it so? And do you seek your refuge in Christ's work on the cross as the only way to escape those toxic bites, the only way to escape the judgment of God? You see, that is faith. And that's, of course, far more than admitting Jesus comes from heaven. Such faith is the evidence of being born again. Such rebirth. Having such faith. Being so focused on Christ. That, beloved, is your responsibility and mine. And the promise of God is, though so fixed on Christ born again, shall inherit life eternal. That's the promise, and the promise is sure. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.